0: All right, let's go ahead and get started. I have a lot to get through. I don't know if I'll get through it all or not today, but I'm sure going to try. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, thank you so much uh, for another Sabbath day, Um, just to rest, um, to worship you and to learn about you and to draw close to you. I pray, God, that um, you would just uh, sharpen our minds uh, today and and open our hearts, God, so that we could just draw close to you and and glorify you and just... um, have good fellowship with each other. I pray you'd be with the teaching today that I get through as much as I can today and, and just lay the foundation and uh, so we can just dive into stuff next week and just really um, be truly inspired by the story of um, how you have spread your word and your gospel and your people throughout this world. We thank you so much, God, for all you give us we pray all these things. In your name, Jesus, amen. amen. All right, so as I said last week, um, today I am going to get into a little bit more kind of, you know, theological kind of foundational stuff, Okay. Uh, I hope that doesn't turn anyone off, okay, please come back next week and we're going to get back more into kind of the adventure of stuff, but it is important to kind of talk about some of these foundational issues um, uh, so that we kind of know why we study church history and where it kind of fits in the theological map. Um, I guarantee tomorrow, we're, uh, next week, we're going to get into it, so if I don't get into everything this week, and I have, I, I have a lot uh, to, to go over today, um, I'm going to give a separate handout um, uh, to go over Um, Next week, wherever I stop, that's just where we're going to stop, and then I'll cover the rest in a separate handout. Um, If you are going to be a regular at class, I would ask that you try and read that. I know that handouts are not the funnest, and most of the time we just want to come to class and and listen. That's a lot more fun. I enjoy teaching verbally a lot more than I do in a handout format. But I just know that a lot of you will probably have certain questions or certain expectations, um, and so I I just want to clear all that up. Um, you know, in some of these foundational stuff before we actually dive into the meat of, of church history. So please um, uh, go uh, read that if you, if you can. It'll kind of help you understand like how I'm going to approach the class over what will be the last seven uh, sessions of the class. Okay. All right. So um, kind of going back to last week. Going to wrap this up as, as quickly as I can. Um, just talking about how persecution is sort of the um, kind of. Either one of the major themes, if not the sort of major theme of the history of the church, okay? Um, we talked about last week that the persecution of Christ is really the foundation for the persecution of the church, and the two cannot be separated um, from each other. I will get into a lot more detail about all this different persecution, but I just wanted to give an overview, just sort of to lay um, the idea of just how, um, you know, uh, you know, Persecution has been so overwhelmingly the case throughout most of the church history, okay? Uh, most people are aware of persecution sort of in the early days of the church, okay? Who was doing most of the persecution for sort of the first 300 years of church history, okay? It's like, yeah, Rome, okay? Yeah, exactly, okay? Uh, in the early, earliest days of the church, it would have been sort of the, the, the Jews and the Romans, and we see that sort of in the apostolic area, okay, in the first century of the church, but by the time you get to about 100 A.D. to about 300 um, A.D., it's pretty much just the Roman Empire. The Jews themselves are now um, being heavily persecuted by the Roman Empire because they were um, sort of disbanded um, when the Rome, uh, Roman Empire attacked um, the temple in A.D. 70. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, But a lot of people tend to think that sort of like that was the worst of it. You, you hear these terms like the... Um, The blood of the martyrs is sort of the the seeds of the church, okay? And there's a lot of truth to that, okay? That that initial persecution really helped the church to understand what the church was about and what the church could sort of expect throughout its history. But you want to make sure that you don't think that the persecution ended there, okay? The persecution certainly didn't end there, uh, and there's been pockets of church history where the persecution has been every bit as bad. Um, Some would even argue even worse, okay? Um, So, but the first 200 years... Heavy, heavy persecution uh, uh, from the Roman Empire, from about the end of the apostolic era, when the biblical canon is closed, from about 100 to 300 AD, you have major, major time persecution uh, from the Roman Empire. A lot of secular historians today are trying to kind of downplay that. They're trying to water that down a little bit. And there is some truth to the fact that there were pockets of the Roman Empire where the church knew relative peace, okay, where there wasn't a lot of persecution. It wasn't universal across the board in every single city, every single village, so on and so forth, all right? Um, but by and large, okay, uh, it was a period of persecution. And there was always, even if you were in a um, region of the Roman Empire where you were personally experiencing peace, it was never that peaceful. Why? You were always under the what, even if you were technically in a part of the Roman Empire that they weren't coming after you what's that uh, It was pretty hard for Christians to become citizens if they already were citizens you know it was more that the threat of persecution always loomed, okay, so you never really felt all that safe no matter where you were because the threat of persecution was always uh very present okay now from about three hundred to about five hundred a d Most of the physical persecution, I'm talking torture, uh, the threat of imprisonment, all those different types of things, largely ceased, okay? But as we talked about last week, persecution does not always need to come in the form of physical persecution, okay? Oftentimes it can be spiritual warfare, all right? Does anyone know what the church was dealing with from 300 to 500 AD, big time, uh, as far as sort of a big challenge, What's that? The person of Christ? Yeah, exactly, okay? Heresies. We're absolutely tearing the church apart, okay? And the very empire that had given them peace was losing patience with the church, okay? So there was always this fear that Rome might turn on the church again if it couldn't sort of get its act together. And the church was trying to explain... It's not that we can't get our act together, you've got all these other groups claiming to be Christians and they're causing all these problems, okay? So you um, you have, during this time, you have the Arian controversy, you have the Donatist controversy, you have the Pelagian controversy, and you have the Christological controversies, okay? As Pastor said, mostly dealing with the the deity um, or the two natures of, of Christ, okay? All right, after that, you have the fall of the Roman Empire from about 500 to 800 AD. Again, not so much physical persecution, but more spiritual warfare. Uh, the church found itself, okay, uh, knee-deep in the Dark Ages. And this was not a fun time to live, okay? Uh, a lot of poverty, not a lot of food. Uh, the weather changed in Western Europe dramatically, okay, as well. It got a lot, what? Does anyone know during this period of time? A lot, a lot colder, okay? So again, to be a Christian, especially in the Western church, uh, was not a very fun uh, uh, thing, okay? Then from about 700 to about 1100, okay, you had heavy, heavy, physical persecution from two groups. Does anyone know what two major groups were in this time? One mostly was attacking the east, and the other one was mostly attacking the west. Okay, yes, very good, okay? Also, okay, um, I would include, Mongols kind of came a little bit later after that, um, but I would say the Vikings, okay, as well, okay? So you have the, um, the Vikings um, and the Muslims, okay, rise up during this period of time, okay? And then from about, 11, about 1,200 to 1,300-ish, okay, you have the Mongols as well. <clears throat> and then from about 1,300 to 1,500, okay, still some carryover from the Mongols, but a period of peace, okay. But again, a lot of spiritual warfare, okay, because um, the, uh, a church is really falling apart, okay. You have heresy, you have idolatry, you have the Renaissance, which did a lot of good, don't get me wrong, it did a lot of good things. But it also, okay, brought about what sort of philosophical movement that the church is still dealing with uh, to this day. Does anyone know? Uh, Enlightenment was, was, was a fruit of that, sure. Okay, does anyone know during this time? Humanism. Very good, thank you, okay? Humanism, where the focus became not so much on God, but the focus became more on humankind. Now, during this time, the church sort of was a check against humanism getting out of control, but nonetheless, the seeds of humanism were planted, and they continued to grow until eventually they led to the Enlightenment, okay, and then that led to liberal Protestantism and liberal theology, okay, um, as many of you guys know is a passion of mine to sort of refute, um, is a big problem to this day, okay, and a lot of that goes all the way back to humanism, all right? Then you have the period of the Reformation, okay? Um, on the eve of the Reformation, the church, especially in the West, okay, is absolutely falling apart. It's just crumbling, okay? <clears> okay? <throat> And God rises up the mighty Reformation. And most of us know about the glories of the Reformation, okay? But we need to not forget the intense persecution that took place uh, during the period of the Reformation. And this was, yes, spiritual warfare, but also very much physical persecution as well, okay? Many, many Christians were burned at the stake, okay? Um, And we tend to really focus on that persecution. It was bad. I can't imagine few things that would be more horrible than being burned at the stake. But most Protestants were killed through what? during this period of time. Does anyone know? It's not so much being burned at the stake. What's that? Plague. Uh, Plague. Plague would come earlier, okay, and that's more kind of during the Renaissance period, okay, really through warfare, okay, brutal warfare through the Catholic Protestant Wars and despite what any historian tells you, okay, the Protestants were certainly not perfect during this period of time, I'm not saying that, but the Catholic Church was by all means the aggressor during this period of time. They felt that it was their role to restore, okay, the Catholic Church to predominance and power, and um, thousands and thousands of Protestants uh, uh, were brutally massacred, okay, through um, uh, these wars, all right? And then uh, sort of from uh, about 1600 to about 1800-ish, mostly in the 1600s, okay? um, uh, Does anyone know what group, okay, a group that as Reformed Christians we would put a lot of emphasis on uh, was heavily, heavily persecuted uh, by Not just the Catholic Church, but even a lot of groups claiming to be Protestant. Okay, Anabaptists, yes. Okay, Yeah, I would say the Puritans, okay. Huguenots, you could kind of put them semi under the umbrella of sort of Puritan theology. Not exactly, but the Huguenots absolutely experienced heavy persecution uh, during this period of time. A lot of Protestants experienced persecution, but the one that I would say experienced the most was the Puritans, okay. Uh, Puritans uh, um, were, uh, anytime they tried to leave, okay, Um, England, okay, uh, the Catholic Church or other groups would come after them, okay, and then what's really crazy is that the Anglican Church, the the, uh, uh, British monarchy, okay, really came after uh, uh, the Puritans, okay, eventually causing them to leave, okay, go to the Americas um, where they experienced a lot of spiritual warfare, okay. From about 1800 uh, to 1900, okay, the church experienced a a time of fairly relative peace from uh, physical persecution, um, but again, there was a lot of uh, spiritual persecution going on. The church was dealing with the issue of slavery in America, so on and so forth. We'll go over that, okay? But then from 1900 really until the present day, okay, largely because of the age of missions, write that down, okay, the church again has uh, uh, experienced very intense persecution, okay? Um, In America, okay, not so much, all right, but as the gospel began to become global, as awesome as that is, and we're going to go over that, what a great and fantastic, amazing thing that is, okay, the church has experienced very severe persecution pretty much anywhere it went, okay, the gospel, a, a lot of people don't know this, has been spreading for the last about 120 years or so heavily in India, okay, and the church experienced tremendous persecution in India, okay. One of the primary reasons is because Christians found the most fertile soil among what group in India? Yeah, the untouchables, the lowest caste, okay, and that made Hindus really, really upset. Okay, So you had a lot of persecution uh, in India. In China, Russia, anywhere where communism was dominant in the 20th century, the church experienced extreme persecution. Okay? Um, even in Korea, where you would tend to think, um, you know, because of the, the relationship with America and South Korea because of the Korean War, you would think the church would be heavily protected, and, it, and to some extent it was and it was allowed to thrive there. Okay? There was a lot of pushback even in Korea okay, uh, against the the growth of the church, okay, and we'll talk about that. And pretty much anywhere the gospel is spread throughout Africa or Asia, the church has met a lot of resistance, okay, where uh, different tribes or groups, okay, are not very happy to see Christianity there, okay. So as you can see, just sort of going over the overarching scope of history, yeah, there's been periods of peace, yeah, there's been sort of, you know, blips on the screen, but for the most part, okay, uh, the church has been, um, you know, under almost a constant duress, okay, where um, either through uh, physical persecution or spiritual persecution or both, okay, sort of marked the church, okay? All right, um, number C, okay, the danger of over-romanticizing, okay? We, we talk a lot about the persecution of the church. I find it very inspiring. Most Christians do as well. It should be a real help to you in your faith, all right? We all go through really difficult stuff, all right? All um, right, I I myself have been through some pretty tough uh, periods of my Christian walk, and it's something to remember that no matter how bad things get, okay, I promise you there's been a lot of Christians over the history of the church that have had it way, way worse, all right? Um, And that's not to be all dark and cloudy, it's just to say no matter how bad it's getting, okay, there's a lot of Christians that have endured far more than anything that, generally speaking, uh, we we endure here in, in the States. That's not to make light of things. People go through cancer and lose children and broken families, and, and, and I'm not making light of any of that stuff. But I'm just saying, uh, when, you, when we get into the persecution, you'll see how scary some of this stuff is and how lucky and how blessed we have been here um, in, in the States. Okay, I'm going to try and keep things, I'm not going to say PG. <laughs> That'd be pretty hard. I, again, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too graphic. I don't think that would be appropriate in, in, a, in a broad church history class like this. So maybe not R-rated, but maybe PG-13-ish, you know, when I get into stuff. Um, It's pretty gory. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I think the person in the church is is something we need to cover. It's so important. Uh, And and I'm not going to get as gory as you could get. But, I mean, we're talking about some really... Really tough stuff that Christians went through, okay? Uh, Christians were burned alive. They were skinned alive. They were impaled. Many Christians in the Roman Empire, would, they would take hot, molten li- liquids, and they would pour them into your ears, your nose, your private areas. Um, women had their, you know, stomachs torn open. Uh, there was rape. I mean, I, again, I, I'm trying to keep it, you know, sort of pg 13 but just so you we know... It's, it's, there's a danger to over-romanticize the persecution. It's like, yeah, it's such a part of the church and we want to talk about it, and we want to be inspired by it, but let's remember persecution really was persecution. It was bad, okay? And we need to pray for our br- brothers and sisters in Christ that are being persecuted throughout the world uh, um, today and be ever grateful that God has spared us from that, but also be very prepared. Um, we, like I said last week, we don't know what is exactly on the horizon, Okay. <clears throat> Um, and then the last thing before I get into the next, um, section, (coughs) answering a very important question, what do we make of the last? And this sort of ties into my last point about not over-romanticizing persecution. There's a lot of Christian historians that, uh, you know, are, are sometimes try to make it a little flowery than it is, okay, and every single Christian, like, stood the, the ground to the last second, okay? The fact of the matter is, as much as it kind of sucks to say it, most Christians actually repudiated their faith before they got to the final step, okay? And those people were known as the lapsed, okay? Those were people who uh, did not stick to their confession of faith to the very last second, okay? And the early church, and really the church throughout its history, has a really hard time understanding precisely how to deal with this group of people, okay? Okay? you have those that are very, take a very hard line. Jesus said, you deny me, okay? You deny the Father, that's it, you're done, okay? You're not saved, okay? You can repent and become resaved, okay? Or, or saved for the first time, okay? Uh, and then you have those, okay, that take a more gracious view saying, you know, look at Peter. Peter uh, rejected Christ and it was under a lot less persecution than what a lot of Christians uh, endured, okay? So maybe we shouldn't go so far as to say they weren't saved, but they had moments of weakness, okay? The problem with that, though, is if you overly emphasize that, what does that start to give Christians who are under persecution? What's that? Excuse. An excuse, okay, where it's sort of like, you know, go, uh, say that you believe in Jesus, and, you know, do your best, but, you know, it's okay. As soon as you sort of, it's too much, just say you don't believe, and God still loves you, and it's okay. And We don't want to say that, okay? So there's been different views on how to deal with the lapse. You don't have to agree with my approach. This is a difficult sort of theological question. My view is, okay, is that we every case should be sort of dealt with on a case-by-case basis. I don't think we should make overly broad statements, okay? Um, there's been a lot of Christians that, you know, stuck to their faiths. You know, they kept their profession. They went through a lot of persecution. And almost anybody will break under enough torture, okay? Your sort of brain sort of shuts off and your instincts sort of go into play. Um, and I think there's certain Christians we we should say... I don't necessarily think they weren't saved, okay? I think when Jesus said, you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father, I think he's talking about persecution, yes, don't get me wrong, I think that's a part of it, but I think he's largely saying, you know, if someone at work asks you if you're a Christian and you're embarrassed to say yes, eh, I think that passage applies to you, and I'm not trying to be overly harsh, okay? We need to not be ashamed, all right? Or if the moment you go before the Roman authorities and the second they start threatening you, You're saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. Uh, Again, I think that's not good, okay? Um, But the the more you study history, I mean, there's really tough cases. There were cases of Christians who were undergoing the worst torture you can imagine. I mean, I'm talking really nasty, bad stuff, and stuck to their profession of faith. And then their torturers would say, if you don't deny Christ, I'm going to go torture all those people in that other room, okay? What do you do in that situation? That's That's a tough ethical dilemma, and I don't think we should be overly black and white when we're dealing with the lapsed, okay? There were people under that situation who felt it was more loving and more Christ-like to not deny Christ in their heart, but to deny Christ with their mouth so as to spare others of that torture. Some would say, no, never, never, ever. Again, you know, certainly through the Spirit's help, we should do our best to never, ever deny Christ. But the situation with the lapsed is a difficult issue. Does that make sense, okay? And we'll run into it again and again throughout uh, 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 church history. Yes, sir? You mentioned this. Christians in the other room. Uh, it might not even have been Christians, though. And they often did. Instead of you say if you don't deny, I'm going to torture your family. And they often did. And uh, you know, I'm sure that that happened as well. I mean, you know, I, I, I my wife, don't deny Christ for me. Sure. And she said the same thing. I don't know. if hope it ever comes to that. But I said, if that never that, happened. I, I agree, but oftentimes people in the other room—they weren't necessarily Christians or your family. They were just, you know, other people. But you know, what I mean, they—they they would find ways uh, to to break you. Again, I lean more towards don't deny Christ no matter what. I'm just saying, you know, we got to look at Peter. We got to look at some of these difficult issues. I think that the lapsed. Um, I think it was. I think the churches who dealt with it best are the ones who dealt with each case on a case-by-case basis and looked at. Yeah, exactly. What what was this? What was this person's life like before the persecution? How well did they in- endure? What were the circumstances that caused them to deny? Um, and many many churches were very gracious in restoring them. Others were more harsh. It, it sort of just kind of depended. Okay. So, but that is a difficult question we'll run into. Just be aware of that. Okay. All right. Foundational issues. Okay. The first one is what is the church? <clears throat> So there's all these different sort of angles of ways of looking at the church. And again, I could spend a lot of time on this. I don't have time, but just let's go over some of these quick distinctions. Because when we talk about church history, all right, we want to know what exactly are we talking about, okay? Because there are some, all right, who have a very, very broad understanding of the church, all right? There are some who would say pretty much anybody who claims to be a Christian from a sociological standpoint is a Christian. That is the church, all right? Um... By and large, reformed people definitely do not take that position okay there might be some variations on how you know, broad or, or narrow you want to make the church but again you know saying that you know groups like Christian scientists okay uh, jehovah's witnesses so on and so forth are part of the church um, and most reformed Christians would take serious exception to that okay all right so um, the first one is the invisible church <clears throat> the invisible church is looking at the church from its most sort of inherent point of view. Like, what is the church in its core essence? All these other ones are sort of more qualifications or caveats, looking at the church from a broader angle. The invisible church really sort of the church as it is, okay? The invisible church are all of those that are truly united to Christ, okay? It's that simple. Whether they're in heaven, whether they're on earth, whether they've been born yet, or whether they haven't been born yet, okay? All those that are truly united to Christ form the church. So when we talk about the church in its core essence, it is basically all those who are saved, who are united to Christ, and that's why the Bible uses analogies such as it's um, Christ's body. Okay? We are united to Christ. And because we're all united to Christ as true believers, we're all united also, what? To each other. Okay? All right? So that is the body of Christ. At its core essence, that is the church. Okay? We run into problems or caveats, okay, because of the fact, okay, none of us knows exactly who is truly saved and who is not truly saved. Does that, everyone understand that, okay? The only person you can truly, in this life, know with 100% certainty is yourself, and even then, you're going to have moments of doubt and fluctuation. Does that make sense to everybody, okay? No matter how well you know a Christian, and you can be pretty darn sure about certain people that they're saved, okay? I have seen people become apostate that I never, ever, would have thought. I mean, it just, it, it, it was literally floored me, okay? So it does happen, all right? So we talk about the visible church, okay? The visible church is made up of all those who have a credible profession of faith, who we need to treat like our brother and sister of, in Christ um, because they um, certainly seem to be a Christian. We have fellowship with them, we accept them, but we do not know for with certainty that they are, in fact, saved, okay? <clears> okay. <throat> Uh, The church militant, does anyone know what this refers to? No one's heard of the the distinction between the church militant and the church triumphant? I know some of you guys have, you just don't want to say. (laughs) Okay, church militant is the church on earth, okay? The church that is sort of still fighting the good fight, okay? Those Christians that are truly united to Christ, and you can look at that from both the visible and invisible aspects, okay, (laughs) that is still suffering for Christ, Okay, is being conformed to the image of Christ. Okay, with that, what do you think the triumphant church refers to? The church in heaven. Okay, all right, and that's an important distinction. Okay, eventually we'll all be one. Okay, on the new earth. But for right now, there is a distinction. There are those that have been their suffering is over, their persecution is over. Okay, they have been uh, fully sanctified, fully conformed to the image of Christ, and they are in uh, heaven. Okay, so there is a clear distinction in the Bible between the church on earth that is sort of fighting the good fight and the church that is in heaven. Uh, The organic church, okay, refers to the fact that uh, the church, okay, is a living organism. And as Protestants, that is a big deal, okay? Even amongst Protestants like Presbyterians and Reformed who highly emphasize the organizational aspect of the church, we really want to emphasize the organic church in contradistinction to who, who tends to just basically almost obsess over what they call the organizational church. Who, who, who yeah. yeah, Roman Catholicism, that was a big deal, the time of the, of the Reformation. To this day, for the Roman Catholic Church, its core, its essence is not those that are united to Christ, okay? The church, as the church, is the Roman Catholic Church, okay, in its fully organizational element, okay? We would more emphasize that the church is organic. It's a living, okay, entity made up of living beings with souls united to Christ and united to each other. All right, the organized or institutional church. Yes, the church is organic, okay, but we also want to make sure we understand the church is institutional. You've had groups over the years, some Anabaptists, some Plymouth Brethren, some others, okay, who almost want to get rid uh, uh, of the um, or Quakers, some of the Shakers as well want to get rid of the institutional element. Okay, so they don't believe in in uh, elders, they don't believe in pastors, they don't believe in deacons. Or if they do, they heavily de-emphasize those things. Many of those groups even reject the sacraments altogether. Not just as unimportant, but completely reject them uh, altogether. Okay, so the church has an institutional uh, element. Okay, a lot of people mistakenly equate the institutional church and the visible church, and they're not the same thing, and that's important to realize, okay? Oftentimes, you will have a church, okay, who has an orthodox creed, okay, who has many orthodox pastors, elders, deacons, and many orthodox members, okay? From an institutional point of view, okay, we don't want to call such denominations or churches or groups completely heretical or outside of the church. Does that make sense? Okay, but many of them are sort of falling away, okay? Um, I'll give you a really good example, okay, during the Arian controversy, okay, the church held, okay, in, in an official capacity to the Nicene Creed. Does everyone know what the Nicene Creed is? Okay, if you don't, we'll go over that later. Basically, this was the creed that said that Jesus is what in no uncertain terms? God, okay, Jesus is God. But the Arians didn't go away. They certainly seemed to be defeated at the Council of Nicaea, but they did not go away at all, okay? And in the institutional church, you still had a lot of churches that sort of behind the scenes were still Arian, and they were anointing Arian pastors, so on and so forth, okay? We would call such churches and such groups, they are part of the institutional church, okay? They, they're sort of, John Gerstner, and this might seem like a harsh analogy, he called them like a cancer on the church, okay? And he applied that analogy in his day to liberal Protestantism. He said, yeah, I get that they're part of the church, but they're a cancer on the church, and it's our job to try to remove that cancer, okay? But they're still not part of the visible church. Does that make sense? Okay, Their profession of faith is not valid because they are proclaiming doctrines that are outside, all right? And so oftentimes the institutional church can be in really bad shape, okay? Where do we see that in the Bible big time, okay? What's that? Corinth would be an excellent example, okay? But I think even on a much broader level, where, what's that? Okay? Let's not think so much New Testament, although I think those are all good examples, okay? okay? Throughout the history of the Old Testament Israel, okay, they were God's people. God recognized them as the church. Didn't use that word in the Old Testament, okay, but clearly the Old Testament Israel, okay, uh, and the New Testament church are connected. They are one. Okay? Um, and the institutional church or people of God was often a mess in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, there were oftentimes cancers okay, upon God's people that sometimes the cancer almost seemed to be taking over uh, 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 the, the church. Does that make sense? Okay? Through idolatry, paganism, so on and so forth. Okay? Um, a lot of people will say, well, you can't really compare Israel to, like, the church today. You know, they're so different, okay? You know, the, in Israel, you had people sacrificing their babies, okay, to the pagan gods and stuff like that, all right? Um, we don't see anything like that in the church today, okay? And I always tell people, is that really true, okay? No, okay? There are oftentimes churches, okay, and groups that are part of otherwise orthodox denominations. Those denominations are not doing a good enough job to sever those cancers, okay? And many of those churches, okay, support What? Yeah, abortion, Planned Parenthood, okay? And I'm going to be honest with you. I know this is a hot-button issue, and a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but a lot more babies are being killed through abortion than were ever killed in ancient Israel, by far, okay? And many of that takes place within the church, okay? I went to a Pentecostal uh, college on a basketball scholarship, I actually got saved when I was at that college. I'm not Pentecostal, so no one can get upset, okay? But uh, um, <laughs> but at the time, I was going to a Pentecostal college. I have my disagreements with Pentecostal theology, but overall, this was a pretty orthodox Bible-believing school. Some of the excesses you see in other places, you really didn't see that much at this at this school, okay? But I can tell you, being on the basketball team and being there, well. Pre-saved and post-saved, okay, there was all kinds of stuff that was going on behind the scenes, okay, that oftentimes the school was not doing enough to eradicate, and I'll tell you, where was most of the really bad stuff going on? Amongst the what groups, do you think? Uh, <laughs> pastors kids, that's a good that's you know, uh, <clears throat> I hope not, okay? The sports teams, and why do you think that the school was not all that willing to do that much to discipline such people? Money, there you go, okay? The sports paid for most of the uh, books and uh, professors' salaries and stuff like that, okay? Uh, And I knew many uh, of of the girls who had abortions, and I'm not trying to just pick on the girls, I knew many of the boyfriends who were pushing and encouraging them to get abortions, and this was taking place at an otherwise orthodox Bible-believing college, okay? So again, the institutional church can be a mess, and it can oftentimes have a lot of tears amongst the wheat, and we want to be aware of that, okay? And we're going to talk about, as we go through this class, when the institutional church was doing really well, like during the Reformation, okay, or the 1600s, when Protestantism was in its heyday, and we're going to talk about other periods of times like the Middle Ages, when the institutional church was kind of a nightmare, okay? All right. Um, <clears throat> and then the last sort of uh, 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 words that I'll use, okay, and the church is objectively... What that means is whether it seems that way to us sometimes, whether it feels that way, based on God's word, we know that these words apply to the church, even ancient Israel, even at its worst. It might have only been a remnant, okay? It might have only been once you sort of sort of you know tore off all the gunk, okay. But at its core, the church is these things, okay? It is holy. The church is made up of sanctified people. Okay, we want to fight against any and all forms of antinomianism. Okay, that say that true Christians can live in sin. Okay, for long, you know, prolonged uh, uh, periods of their life. Okay, I'm not saying Christians can't backslide. I'm not saying Christians can't fall into very serious sins. I'm not saying Christians can't blow it. I'm not saying there's not going to be lukewarm Christians. But a true, someone who has truly been saved by Christ, is not only justified. They are also what, sanctified. sanctified. Okay, and the two cannot be separated. The church is objectively holy especially the invisible church is made up of people who have been changed by the Holy Spirit, okay? The church is one. The church might not often seem very one, okay? Uh, But the church is one. We are all united to Christ, okay? And even in an organizational sense, we are one. Even when you have all these different denominations and sometimes we have a lot of infighting, we don't always get along very good, even organizationally, we are one because we are all united to our monarch, Jesus Christ, okay? And he sort of rules over the church, okay? <clears throat> um, the church is apostolic, okay? What that means, okay, in short, the, the church is based upon biblical teaching, all right? The teaching of the apostles, okay, which is also rooted in the teaching of the prophets of the Old Testament, okay? The church is apostolic. That doesn't mean we have to have any sort of apostolic, a doctrine of apostolic succession or anything like that, but the church, okay, is Um, receives its teachings, okay, and it receives its commands, okay, and its ordinances from the Bible, And then the final one, the church is Catholic, and by that I don't mean Roman Catholic, okay? I mean Catholic, small c, okay, which means what? Does anyone know what that means? Universal. Universal, very good, okay? And this is very important. You have groups to this day, and you'll have groups throughout church history, okay, who try to limit the church, okay, to one race, to one ethnicity, to one nationality, uh, uh, to predominantly one gender, okay, or to an elite group of really smart people or elite group who have been given special revelations outside of the Bible, so on and so forth. We always want to fight against such things. The church is universal, okay? God does not save everybody. But the offer of salvation is given to everybody, and it's our job to preach to everybody. And we are never to say to somebody that they are um, out, okay, other than, you know, maybe the exception of somebody who's committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and even that's a tough issue, okay? Uh, um, But, you know, never based on gender, race, ethnicity, so on and so forth to the uh, Christians are the white man's organization. And we're going to talk about that in a little later. Why that stereotype exists and why it's still a problem to this day. I mean, we can refer to people as reprobate. I mean, that's a good word. Yeah, I don't have any problem with, with reprobate, but that's that's from God's standpoint, you know, who he's chosen and who he's not chosen. And he certainly the Bible's very clear. He never the reprobate are never the reprobate because of any of those things I said. Never because of their gender, their age, their education, their ethnic background or any of those things, okay? But yeah, certainly, I use the term reprobate. Um, it is a sound theological term. God has not chosen everybody, and those that are not chosen will receive God's justice. Okay? And th- those are two separate issues, but yeah, good question. Okay. All right, um, any questions? I know I'm like flying, but there's a lot I wanted to get through today. Okay, everyone's good, okay? All right, the next one is the question of heresy, okay? I'm not gonna go into a lot of stuff that I could go over in this one, if you guys go back over to my Trinity class, I went over some really key important things about heresy. So if you have any questions like, well, are you saying that orthodoxy saves us? No, I'm not saying that. And if you want me to go over that a little bit more, go back to my Trinity class, okay, um, where I talk about the question of heresy more in depth, okay? Really quick, I just want to go over, okay, that those two circles that I went over in that class. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, okay, but it's important when we go over church history, Okay. And the reason being is there was a lot of heretical groups that have risen up, okay? I know in our day, we tend to really focus on Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. I guarantee you those are not the only two heretical groups that have existed throughout church history. There's been a lot of them, and they have been a constant thorn in the flesh of the church, causing a lot of problems and a lot of issues, okay? And so it's very important as we go through church history to say, who is in here, which we're going to focus on, the church, okay, uh, and who is out here, okay? All right. Not everyone might agree with my classification, All right, but at least it's important to have a classification. Because if you just say, everybody who claims the name of Christ is saved, that gets to be really problematic. Okay, A passage I quoted in that class on the Trinity that's really, really important. And I, I want to emphasize, again, these are not my words. These are not Dan Jensen's words. They're not Tim Posey's words. They're not the PCA's words. They're not Spring Meadows' words. Okay, These are the words of Jesus Christ. And he said, if you do not believe that I am he... You will what? What did he say? Okay, you will die in your sins. That's John 8 24. Okay? What is Jesus essentially saying there? If you do not believe what, what's going to happen? I am God. Okay? The deity of Christ is non negotiable. And I can't tell you how many times I talk to Christians today who don't want to accept that. And they're arguing with me like it's me. And they'll always say, that's so narrow, that's so bigoted, that's so, you're so judgmental, and the church has come so far, and we don't burn people at the stake anymore. Why are you saying these things? And I always point them that passage, and they never want to deal with it. They always come right back. I I don't know exactly what Jesus is getting at there, okay? But, you know, I I just can't accept the fact that, you know, Mormons or so and so are are not Christians, okay? Uh, And again, having said when I talked about a lot in my Trinity class, okay, um, being around a, a lot of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, people that I was very close with you're not doing them any favors, okay, by not telling them the truth, okay? You might think you're being loving and accepting and tolerant, but no, you're not, okay? They need to hear about the real Jesus based on what Jesus says in those words, okay? If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, okay? And some of these groups, you might be like, oh, I don't really deny the deity of Christ, okay? A lot of times they do more than you think, okay? Uh, Take liberal Protestantism. A lot of them do overtly deny the deity of Christ, but not all of them. Some of them will say, I believe in the Nicene Creed. I believe in the deity of Christ, okay? However, all right, then they will go and they will absolutely just tear the Old Testament apart. What what are some of the things they'll say about the Old Testament? Irrelevant? Irrelevant? Good. Okay, others, and that's actually one of the more mild ones. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Mythical, okay? We don't believe in those Old Testament things. We believe in Jesus we believe in the red letters of the Bible, but all other, everything else is, you know, we're not so sure about, okay? You know, some of those stories in the Old Testament are hard to believe. Those, those, are, those are myths, okay? Uh, um, excellent example, but both of those are still probably on the lighter side, okay? They'll say the Old Testament God is what? What, what God of wrath. He's mean. He's harsh, okay? He's bigoted, okay? Um, he's out of control, okay? I've heard people even go so far as to call him barbaric okay? And what's important about Jesus' words in John eight twenty four? He doesn't just say, if you do not believe that I am God, you will die, di- die in your sins, because then you can pour any meaning you want into the term God. Does that make sense? He specifically says, if you do not believe that I am He, and what is He saying when He says, I am He? Not that I'm just any God, that I'm who? God of the Old Testament. I am, what is His name? Yahweh, okay? I am Yahweh, and if you don't believe that I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins, okay? You can tell me until you're blue in the face, you believe in the Nicene Creed, and you believe in the deity of Christ, so on and so forth. But if you do not believe in the deity of Christ in the sense that you believe that he is the God of the Old Testament, he's claiming to be that God, which is a crazy claim, and yet Jesus made that claim a number of times. Jesus is saying, you will die in your sins. Okay? So again, um, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's very important okay, that we kind of make these distinctions. In Galatians, okay, Paul talks about okay, that if you preach... A different gospel than the one that he's preached, even if you are an angel, okay? And obviously, he's being hyperbole. Angels are not going to preach false gospels, okay? But things might come in the appearance of an angel, okay? Um, if, even if you are an angel, Paul says, and you preach a different gospel than I have preached, you are what? Anathema, Anathema okay? All right, and again, that's what the Reformation was all about. Rome had always sort of put their toes to the line throughout the Middle Ages. Some would even say they weren't even a true church in the Middle Ages, I, in my opinion, that's going a little too far. What do we do with guys like Augustine, and Aquinas, who were, were pretty orthodox, okay? But they always put their toes right to the line, okay? And then when the Reformation came about, okay, I believe they very much leaped over that line, okay? Because before that, they were always fuzzy on faith alone. They did not always articulate as clearly as they should have. But you can find faith alone in Augustine and, and Aquinas. You might not get it in the exact Protestant sense, okay? But it's there. I can point you to texts where it's there, all right? Um, But during the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church came and said, not only is believing that we are justified by faith alone wrong, okay, it is so wrong, okay, that what? Yeah, if you believe that, you're not truly saved. And you may say, no, Catholics don't believe that anymore. I know a lot of Catholics, and they accept Protestants, okay, as our separated brethren. What they mean by that, okay, is they mean the overwhelming uh, number of Protestants they would say are saved because they are ignorant or they are confused, okay? Rome to this day, because of Trent, they have to in, to be consistent. They have to say, if you really believe in justification by faith alone, you are—that's your conviction—and it's based on knowledge and study of the scriptures. Then you are anathema. Okay, all right. That is a false gospel based on Galatians. Okay, and we need to not shy away from saying that, even though it's very politically incorrect to say such things today, um, even within the church. Amen. All right. Very good. Thank you, Josh. <clears throat> um, so, real quick, this outer circle is what I call, okay, sort of professing Christianity. And by professing, I don't mean credible. This is any and all groups that profess to be Christian, okay, but, um, uh, you know, they have doctrines that sort of place them outside. This is, okay, what I would call the true church. I would mostly equate this with the institutional church, okay? Um, I would say there's lots of tears within here, okay, but this is all Families, organizations, churches, denominations that formally, okay, adhere to the Bible. They might have lots of individual churches and pastors and people who do not, okay? Remember we talked about the institutional church, okay? All right, but nonetheless, okay, they formally adhere to biblical Christianity, okay? Um, Groups in here, okay, I would put, you know, Mormons, okay, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian scientists, Uh, Roman Catholics. Now you might be like, why are some closer than others? Because again, some are closer to orthodoxy than others, and I think we should be honest about that. While I would place Roman Catholicism outside of the circle, we do need to be fair and say that I think there are a lot of Roman Catholics that are confused. I've talked to Roman Catholics, all right, and they'll say, you know, I just can't believe what your doctrine, because I believe faith leads to good works. And I'll say, yeah, that's the Protestant teaching. And they'll just look at me like, no, it's not. Okay, And, and they're oftentimes just confused on the issues. And I think many times those people are saved, okay, uh, but again, they are confused. All right, I, such people are sort of in both, have a foot in both worlds. They're kind of Roman Catholic because they, they go to Catholic church, they think of themselves as Catholic, but really, if you break down their theology, they're much more in the inner circle, okay? And here's where it gets really trippy. As I just said, there's a lot of people in the inner circle that are not truly saved. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, sir. of people are confused because false teaching and those <throat> Yeah, leaders are different than the laity. I'm not. I'm, that's an important distinction to make. Leaders are different than the laity. Okay. Um, all right. But a, a really important point is, I think there's a lot more Roman Catholics that are saved than Christian Scientists. Okay. The Christian Scientists. Absolutely. I, and I'm I'm being very firm on that. They are outside of the circle. Okay. But I think it's important to say. Anytime I'm witnessing to somebody, whether they're Catholic or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or one is Pentecostal, I don't automatically just am like, there's no way you're saved. Sometimes I think they are saved and God has put them on my path or other Christians' path so that we can lead them out of those groups. Does that make sense? Okay, and I think we need to not automatically, okay, so pin God down, okay, and say that they're not saved, all right? But again, there is a gradient, okay? Christian scientists believe almost nothing. I mean, the, the, the formal group from the Bible. Roman Catholics have a lot in common with us as Protestants, even though we put them outside the circle, and so we don't want to equate all these groups. Okay? all right. Now, really quickly, for the sake of this class, all right, the reason I go over this is to talk about what groups okay, should we consider, would I consider, and you can kind of come to your own co- conclusion, okay, part of this inner circle and which not. Again, that doesn't mean every individual in these groups was always saved. Okay? As far as before the Reformation, okay, I would put uh, medieval Catholicism, I would put medieval orthodoxy. I would put the Celtic church. I would put the Waldensians, the Lollards, okay, and the Hussites. There were other smaller groups. I can't go over all of them, but these would be the main ones, okay? These ones down here, okay, I would say were much, much closer to the gospel. And again, you can almost sort of look at like, uh, the, like, you know, you can get closer and closer to the center even within this inner circle. All right, that's sort of like as close to being right on things as possible. Does that make sense? Okay, I would say these guys were really close. I would say this group was sort of in the middle, okay? And even though these were the two dominant groups, they were very, very problematic. Does that make sense? Okay. They always, in my opinion, sort of hovered out here. They were very, very close to the line. All right. And eventually at the Reformation, I believe that they crossed that line. Those are all things that we'll go over. Okay. After the Reformation, okay, I would put historic Protestantism. Why don't I just say Protestantism? What's that? Various groups. Sure. Okay. But I can break those groups down. Okay. It's, it's a good answer, but that's not exactly what I'm driving at, okay? To distinguish them from what group do I kind of reference a lot? Liberal Protestantism, okay? Those are not the same, and I get how confusing that is to people. I'll talk to people at work, and they'll be like, I don't get it. Do you believe Methodists are saved or they're not saved? Because sometimes I'll hear a Methodist guy go on on, on TV, uh, you know, on one of the CNN shows or whatever, and he's saying all kinds of stuff that I know you think is wrong and crazy. But then I know you say you have a Methodist friend that you go and get coffee with and you consider your brother in Christ. For people outside of the church, okay, this can be unimaginably confusing. And it's frustrating, okay? And I always say it depends on the Methodist, okay? Are they a Bible-believing Methodist or are they a liberal Protestant Methodist, okay? right, and then sort of branching off from this, okay, really sort of kind of flowing out of this, okay, would be historic evangelicalism. Again, to distinguish it from liberal evangelicalism or the more popular term today is progressive Christianity, okay? All right. All of these groups can be broken up into a gazillion subgroups. I'm not going to go into all of them, okay? If you ever talk to a Roman Catholic, one of the main things they will try to do to try to disprove Protestantism is they'll say what? Thank you. Excellent, okay? We are just one church. You guys are like a nightmare of a million churches, okay? In, in, those with Roman Catholic backgrounds can testify that's not true. Okay, there are all different kinds of subgroups within Roman Catholicism. Okay, and especially in the Middle Ages, they were constantly at each other's throats. Okay, the Franciscans and the uh, um, the uh, the Thomas. Okay. I mean, they couldn't agree on much, hardly anything theologically, okay? And their, their monasteries, they kept apart from each other, all right? And they had varying different beliefs, okay? There's lots of different groups within Roman Catholicism. You have liberal Catholics, you have conservative Catholics, you have moderate Catholics, you have Jesuits who have one theology, you have the Dominicans who have another theology. That's a hogwash argument. Yeah, they might technically more on paper be organizationally more organized than us or connected than us, but at the end of the day, they have their groups and divisions uh, as well, okay? Uh, Medieval Orthodoxy that became Eastern Orthodoxy, they have tons of different groups. It's mostly based on what in the Eastern Orthodox Church? Does anyone know? What are their groups or subgroups mostly based on? Think of the terms they use to call themselves, okay? Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, yeah, national yeah, Most of their theological differences come from uh, the nation okay, where Eastern Orthodoxy exists. And I can tell you, East, uh, Russian Orthodoxy and Greek Orthodoxy are not the same thing. They have very different beliefs, very different approaches okay, uh, to the faith. All right? So we'll go over all these different subgroups, okay, but just so you know, okay, these are the ones that I would put within this circle that we'll focus on, but I will be referencing these groups to talk about how they came about and the problems uh, that they caused All right, very good. Okay, moving on. Uh, Remnant theology and its relationship to reform theology. I only have like a minute left, okay, so I'll get through this quick. And like I said, I'll hit the rest of these uh, in a handout, okay? All right. Remnant theology is very, very important, okay? Not everybody, okay, um, who's in the institutional church, uh, like I talked about, okay, is part of the true church. The church is always healthiest. Let me erase this real quick. The church is always the healthiest when the invisible church and the institutional church overlap, okay? Okay, so when the institutional church and the invisible church largely, okay, are one, are connected, that is when the church is the healthiest. Does that make sense, okay? Unfortunately, oftentimes throughout church history, the reality is much more like this, (laughs) okay? So you have that overlap, all right? And this overlap, the true church, okay, within the institutional church is oftentimes very small, and we call that a what? Remnant, okay? And remnant theology is everywhere throughout the Bible. And this is a tough one. This is not a fun one, okay? Uh, Especially in our day and age when universalism is so popular, okay? We don't like to think of the church as, you know, uh, smaller than it is, okay? But biblically speaking, look at ancient Israel, okay? It was oftentimes only a remnant that was being faithful, okay? Look at the churches in the New Testament. The authors are constantly having to write to them because they have so many what? Problems, issues, heresies, okay? All right, and then throughout church history, it's no different, okay? And remember what Jesus said, okay? Uh, Many, okay, are called, but what? Few are chosen, okay? The path to righteousness is what? Narrow, okay? And the path to destruction is what? very wide, and most people take it, okay? And as difficult as that is, we have seen that born throughout church history. Now, that doesn't mean the church doesn't grow. It has grown in spite of all odds it grows, and it's growing massively today. But at the same time, okay, the church is oftentimes a remnant, okay, and we will see that Throughout church history, especially in the Middle Ages, we're going to talk about, it was oftentimes just a remnant of monks and nuns, okay, that were faithfully serving Christ, believing in the Bible, while most of the institutional church, okay, was embroiled in all kinds of bad stuff, okay, Uh, as I said, just sort of teetering on that line, okay, and also, real quick, and I said it's relationship to Reformed theology, as Reformed Christians, okay, most of church history, not all of it, during the Reformation, it was flipped, we were the majority, for a short period of time, okay? But throughout most of church history, Reformed Christians have been the minority, okay, within the institutional church, okay? But we have always maintained, okay, that we make a much bigger percentage of the what? The remnant church, okay? We always have maintained we make a much bigger percentage of the remnant church. I understand that can come off as cocky or arrogant or we're full of ourselves, but again, it's our conviction, okay, that if you stick with the Bible and the Bible alone, and you really stick with that all the way down the line, you're going to end up in the Reformed camp. That's just our conviction, okay? And so we would say that we make up a much larger percentage of the remnant church, okay? And remember, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the remnant, okay, uh, were the only ones being faithful. And within the institutional church, they were not only the bad guys amongst the pagans, they were the bad guys amongst even the institutional church, okay? The prophets, were they often very popular, no, okay. The institutional church, okay, they saw them as the narrow guys, the bigoted ones, the, the 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 ones who are always raining on the parade of the institutional church, okay. Jeremiah, perfect example, okay. Why do you have to keep saying these things, Jeremiah? Just shut up and go along with things and be happy. And Israel is good, and God will always take care of us no matter what. Don't you know about those promises of the temple, okay? Again, taking all those things out of context, okay. Uh, and so again. Oftentimes, the Reformed world has had to be sort of that prophetic voice. I'm not saying that we're prophets, don't get me wrong, okay? Uh, But we've had to be that prophetic voice within the church, calling the church back, okay, to its biblical foundations, all right? Okay, sorry, I know today was fairly technical. It won't be like that for the rest of it. I'll give the rest of the handout format next week. Please read that, because I think that'll clear up some questions. And then for the next seven sessions... We're just going to get into kind of the adventure of the church, all right? Thank you guys so much for your patience today. I appreciate it. (laughs)